you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 14. Uh, we're going to look at verses 22 to 33. And, and as you're turning there, let me just remind you of the context because this story happens immediately on the heels of the story we looked at last week. So here's the context. John the Baptist has been killed by Herod the Tetrarch. And Jesus is sad. Jesus is tired. Jesus is grieving. He was trying to withdraw to be by himself to mourn. But crowds found him. And Jesus saw those crowds. This is what we looked at last week. He saw those crowds. He had compassion on them. And instead of turning them away so he could be by himself, Jesus healed their sick. And he healed them, it sounds like, until night fell when his disciples said, Lord, you need to send these people away because there's, we're in the middle of nowhere and there's no food. And Jesus said, bring me the food you've got. They don't need to leave. What they found was five loaves and two fish. And with those, Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children, which is a crowd of somewhere between 10 and 20,000 people. This is an astounding feat. That has just ended. That has just happened. Not only has Jesus fed them, there are leftovers from this miraculous feast. And that is where our passage picks up. So this is Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, that's somewhere between three and six a.m., in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind... He was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind seized, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is God's word for us. This morning, we're going to jump right in. Verses 22 and 23, where our passage opens, tells us that Jesus makes the disciples leave ahead of him. And then he dismisses the crowd. He is sending them across the Sea of Galilee. And then he says goodbye to the crowds. That's what it means when it says he dismisses them. Jesus uh, it says goodbye to them. And then he goes up on a mountain to pray by himself. 
So he sends the disciples on ahead, he dismisses the crowds, and he finally gets to do the thing that he wanted to do, which was to pray. Jesus is sad, Jesus is tired, Jesus is grieving. What does he want to do? He wants to pray. I think sometimes we overcomplicate what prayer is. Sometimes we think about prayer and we think that we have to pray in particular ways. We might have models of prayer that we uh, have grown up with in the church and feel like that's the right way to pray or that praying requires some sort of different language than we normally use, that our language has to be excessively formal, as if there is a right or a wrong or a good or a bad way to pray. And we get so wrapped up in what prayer is that we don't actually stop to do it. Prayer is simply talking to God about your life. That's the heart of prayer. It is talking to God about your life, about your fears, your hopes, your anxieties, your sorrows, your confusions, your joys, and your needs. And so many of us who have walked with Jesus for years now feel guilty about our prayers. We feel guilty because we don't pray enough or because we don't pray long enough or we don't pray good enough. And what I want you to see is that that is not the point. Your goodness, your length of praying, the words even you bring to pray are not the point. And because of that, God is not disappointed in your prayer life. Be freed, Christian. God is not disappointed at the weakness of your prayers. In our theological tradition, we say that prayer is one of the means of grace. And when we say it is a means of grace, what that means is not that we somehow earn something from God when we pray, but what it means is prayer is one of the ways that God's goodness, which is already given us in Christ, that's one of the ways we receive what is already there. I heard one pastor liken a means of grace as like a runner opening his mouth to breathe. That's what prayer is. We're not getting something we don't have. We are receiving something that is already ours in Christ. Prayer is a means of grace, not a means to grace. And I am spending so much time talking about this because I think so many of us are tempted to believe that our prayers are acceptable to God based on the length of them, or the worthiness of them, or the faith that we have, or our holiness, or even the intensity of our prayers. But that is not the case. Our prayers are acceptable to God because of Christ, not because of how great our prayers are. Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, Baptist pastor in London, one time encouraged his congregation, never make a Christ out of your faith. Never make a Christ out of your faith. He's saying, don't trust in the strength of your faith. Trust 
in Christ. Let that, the promises of God in Christ, motivate and support and undergird your prayer life. Your prayers are not acceptable to God because they are great. Your prayers are acceptable to God because God is great. Jesus goes up on the mountain to talk to his heavenly father about his life. That is what our Savior is doing here. And the story continues. Verses 23 to 27 tell us that evening comes as Jesus concludes his time of praying on the mountain. And the boat is a long way from shore. The disciples have made good progress across the Sea of Galilee, but a storm has blown up and the boat is beaten by the wind and the waves. Uh, In fact, in the Greek, the word that is translated beaten could also be translated tormented, um, that they are being tormented by the wind and the waves. It might be helpful just here to note briefly that the disciples do exactly what Jesus has commanded them to do. Jesus said, you need to leave and start rowing across the Sea of Galilee. They do exactly what Jesus has commanded, and they were not spared adversity. And again, I feel like I should mention that because so often I think when we experience adversity, when we experience hardship, our first question to ourselves is, what have I done wrong? And how can I fix it so that this will go away? In this case, the disciples did exactly what they were supposed to do, and it led them not away from hardship, but directly into hardship. So they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Wind has blown up around them. Waves are crashing over the boat, and they get to the fourth watch of the evening, which, like I said as I was reading, is sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. When Jesus comes to them, Walking on the water. That's just sort of casually mentioned there. As if it's sort of normal that people can walk on water. It is not normal. Just in case you were wondering. I know we're inland a little bit. It's not normal to walk on the water. And the disciples see this figure walking towards them on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of the wind and the waves. And they are terrified. They have probably been rowing in this storm for 10 to 12 hours, and now a figure is emerging out of the storm, and they immediately think that this is a ghost or some kind of evil figure. So Jesus reassures them. And what Jesus says to them is, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. These words sound simple in our English translations, but they are words that are profoundly charged with meaning. The the phrase that we translate, it is I, in the Greek is the words ego eimi, which roughly would translate as sort of like I myself am. And those words are a known quantity in the Bible. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, it's what translates uh, Exodus 3.14, when God reveals his name to Moses. 
God says to Moses, I am who I am, ego a me. Those words also happen in John 18, verses 5 and 6, when they are coming to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says to them, I am he, ego a me. Jesus, or then it says, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, ego a me, they drew back and fell to the ground. They could not but understand the implications of what he was saying. When Jesus says, ego a me, when he says, it is I or I am he, he is identifying himself the way God identifies himself. That is the implication here. And in fact, that even calls to mind the Old Testament reading that we had earlier in the service from Isaiah 43. God says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. This is something profound that is happening in this story. Jesus casually displays this unbelievable power by walking on the surface of the water. And then when he calls out to reassure them, he implicitly is saying to them, I'm God. I am the Lord. And so the disciples respond. Verse 28, we see Peter do that. Peter says, Lord, if it's actually you, Peter's still testing the uh, ghost hypothesis. He says, Lord, if it's actually you, command me to come to you. And honestly, Peter here does pretty well. Because Peter, interestingly, seeks a command from Jesus, not a promise. He doesn't say, Lord, promise me nothing bad will happen to me and then I'll come see you. He says, Lord, if it's really you, command me to come. Peter is showing great faith here. Peter's doing pretty good. We should be proud of Peter. In verse 29, Jesus says, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat and Peter himself walks on the water to Jesus. One of the foundational truths of the Bible is that God gives what God commands. God gives what God requires. And by that, what I simply mean is God never says, do this thing and then stands back and watches us fail at it. Whatever God commands us to do, God provides the power for us to do it. The great pastor and theologian, Augustine, who has appeared in like the last four sermons, uh, Augustine said, Lord, command what you will and then give what you command. It's a truth and you see it here. The Lord commands Peter to come to him and then empowers Peter to walk upon the water. Peter again is doing pretty great for a second. Peter does pretty good momentarily. Uh, Verse 30 tells us that Peter kind of walks on the water towards Jesus and then realizes what is happening. You ever have a moment like that where things seem to be going pretty well and then you realize like, oh, this this is it way over my head. Happened to me one time. 
uh, where uh, <laughs> I, I realized it's another swimming story. Uh, you'd think by now I would know that I'm not a good swimmer. Uh, same, same problem. Uh, we were, uh, our family was vacationing on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and there was a sandbar, not 100 yards, like not even 50 yards off the coast. And I thought, oh, fun, we can swim out there and walk around. There were all kinds of like nine-year-old kids out there. I thought, surely I could swim out to this sandbar. So I get in the water and do my uh, awkward swim stroke. And I was doing okay until I stopped for a second to tread water, and I could feel uh, that my feet were cold which meant the water was deep, and I suddenly just panicked. And I kind of did like, nope, 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 like just sort of like ran back uh, onto the coast. But like I realized really quickly, even though it looked like safety was right ahead of me, I was in too deep. This was not the right place for me. There were so many signs, right? I should have known already, the water is not where I am going to thrive. This is what happens to Peter. Peter's like, am I really walking on the water in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee? He realizes what's happening. He panics and he sinks. And he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. Verse 31 tells us that Jesus does. He grabs Peter and he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Again, it's helpful to note Jesus saves him first. He doesn't say, Peter, until you believe more, I'm going to just let you kind of work through your issues here in the Sea of Galilee. It's important to realize that. Jesus saves him and then says, Peter, don't doubt. Peter, you have little faith. Verse 32 tells us they get in the boat together and the storm stops. And verse 33 the disciples worship Jesus. They understand, at least in part, the significance of what they have just seen. Truly, this is the Son of God. Son of God is a biblical term with rich and profound meaning, but it is most importantly used to designate the Messiah, the Savior that God will send to rescue His people. This is the first place in Matthew's gospel where the term son of God is applied to Jesus. The disciples realize what they have just seen. So what does this story mean for us? I think we can say this is a story that shows us something about ourselves and it also shows us something about Jesus. Let's think about what this story teaches us about ourselves. Is the point of the passage that we can do awesome things through faith, or is the point of the passage that we will always get scared and sink? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes. We can do awesome things through faith, and we're always going to get scared and sink. What Peter does in this passage, Peter sort of stands in for all believers. We are all a mixture of faith and unfaith and little faith. We are all a mixture of feats and failures. And that's why it is such good news for us that God gives us 
what God requires from us. It's why it's such good news that God grants what God commands. Think about what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that God commands us to repent and believe, but God gives us what he requires. Ephesians 2 tells us that faith itself is a gift. Faith itself is not something we muster up on our own. It is something God commands from us and gives to us. The Bible tells us that God commands us to walk in faith and to work out our obedience. But God gives what God requires. And that's why it's such good news that in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God at work in us, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. What God requires, God gives. One commentator notes that, Lord, save me, is the cry of both the strong disciple and of the miserable sinner. And so what this is reminding us of, in general, is simply the fact that we never outgrow our need for Jesus. We never get to the point that we are able on our own accord or on our own power to do the things that God requires of us. We never outgrow Jesus. And friends, this should produce humility in us. As we see ourselves in Peter, we should be a humble people. One other commentator put it this way, and this is a little bit longer, but it's so good, I'm going to read it to you. It says this. He says, like Peter, I do not in the end ever actually enter into the Lord's embrace as his love and mine blissfully and serenely proceed toward one another with unfaltering step. No. I will always fall into the Lord's arms gasping for breath after a close brush with death and having had to be rescued by Jesus from impending annihilation. Jesus is not my savior because in my piety I confer upon him this honorific title. He is my savior because he has in fact saved me. He has laboriously earned the title. And there is no time when this name can be shed by him in favor of something more exalted and flattering to my ego. Friends, Jesus is our Savior because we are people who need to be saved. And we don't ever outgrow our need to be saved. And this means that every Sunday when we gather together, if you're here and you're a believer or you're here and you're an unbeliever, We both need the same thing. We need Jesus. Lord, save me is where we live. We never move beyond it. It's what this passage shows us about ourselves. But let's think now about what this passage shows us about Jesus. In the previous passage, in the previous story, Jesus feeds a multitude miraculously, just like God does in the Old Testament. Uh, Think of that. Jesus is doing things that God does. 
Just like God fed his people manna from heaven, Jesus feeds people in the wilderness with nothing but loaves and fish. In this story, Jesus is walking upon the water. And friends, the Bible tells us that that is something only God does. You see it throughout the scriptures. You see it in Job 9.8, which was our prelude reflection this morning. But it says that God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. In Psalm 77 verse 19, it says, The Lord's way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. What matters for us in this passage is not that Jesus does amazing things, but the fact that Jesus is doing things that the Old Testament associates explicitly with God alone. And what this means is that our Savior is no mere man. Our Savior is not a teacher or a philosopher who enlightens us with his ideals. Our Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, is God himself. He feeds the multitudes because he created all things from nothing. Five loaves and two fish? He made the universe with less than that. It's amazing. He walks on the water because he's the Lord of all creation. In him, all things hold together. And what that means is for us, little faiths or no faiths, for us who are failing and sinking and crying out again and again, Lord, save me, there is no doubt as to what happens when we cry that out. Our Savior is able and willing and ready to save. In fact, Jesus is more ready to save you than you are to ask for it. Over and over again, the Lord Jesus says to us, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. It's good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we are people of little faith. Sometimes, Lord, we are people of no faith. And that we often wish and think and hope that we are competent and able and powerful. And yet, Father, we keep getting in over our heads. We thank you that you are always there when we say, Lord, save me. Father, we thank you that you are more ready to save us than we are to ask for it. And we pray that you would produce humility in us, that you would remind us of our constant need for your grace. And Father, we thank you that your grace not only rescues us from sin and death, but your grace actually transforms us. And that what you are asking us to be is what you are making us and have granted us in Christ. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would make us holy. Help us to turn away from sin. Help us to embrace Christ in faith. Help us to walk in obedience, not to earn your goodness, but because we have your goodness in Christ. Father, even now, as we come to your table, 
we pray that you would be at work in us. That you would take this meal, that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to make us more like Christ. Use this meal to strengthen us. Use this meal to empower us to live lives that bear witness to your goodness and your glory. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.